is not doesn't is not going through the same challenges, quote unquote. But I think, to be honest, it's because Canada chose not to go through the same challenges. I think Canada is a great example of a country that has embraced in a very smart way a migration policy that is that is beneficial. That is Welcome to Canusa Street, a podcast at the intersection of the issues and policies between Canada and the United States. Here are your hosts, Scotty Greenwood and Chris Sands. Welcome to Canusa Street, everybody. I'm Scotty Greenwood with the Canadian American Business Council, and I'm joined by Dr. Chris Sands of the Woodrow Wilson Center, and we're in Mexico City. So I think, Chris, it's Canusa Mex. Canusa Mex, yes. We're on the road as those old Bing Crosby uh, movies used to go, where you'd go out and uh, see a part of the world. Canusa Street on the road. Great to be here in Mexico City. It's great to see you, my friend. And uh, this is our pop-up studio, our second uh, our first pop-up studio was in Calgary, Alberta, mm-hmm. uh, on the margins of the Pacific Northwest Economic Region. This one is on the margins of something called the North Capital Forum, which is a trilateral gathering. Uh, and we'll talk more about that. But but we have a wonderful guest. Uh, and let me ask you to introduce him. I'm very excited for the conversation. Well, I'm very excited as well. Um, Dr. Danny Behar is an associate professor of the practice of international and public affairs at Brown University's Watson Institute. He's a faculty affiliate of Brown University's Economics Department and a senior fellow of the Growth Lab at Harvard's Center for International Development. An Israeli and Venezuelan economist, he also has an affiliation with the Brookings Institution in Washington, D.C., the Center for Global Development, SESIFO uh, Group, uh, Munich, and IZA Institute for Labor Economics. So serious economist, uh, which will put me on my uh, on my best behavior. Uh, welcome, <laughs> Dr. Bayer. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here in this wonderful city. We're delighted to have you. Let me let me just start with what brought you to Mexico City for this forum. What's what's the attraction for you, and what are you hoping to get out of it? Well, so I, I I'm I mean, first of all, I have to say the chilaquiles and the Mexican food. That's that's number one reason that, that I'm here. Uh, you know, how can you beat that for breakfast? Uh, but no, in all seriousness, so I, um, I've been collaborating for a while with the U.S.-Mexico Foundation, who is the organization that uh, put this together, and they're, they're doing a wonderful job um, on issues that have to do with productivity in the region and competitiveness in the region, um, and that touches upon not only trade, but also migration, um, investment, of course, and those are the topics that I've been researching for a while, um, both from, you know, with an academic hat, but also with a policy hat. Um, and it's great to be here. I'm going to be uh, hosting a panel on these topics, um, on how to make the region as a whole more productive and competitiveness. And that, of course, has to do a lot with the, what every country is doing in its own, but also about the region as a whole and what kind of arrangements and policies can be, can be put together to, to strengthen the relationship between the countries. Excellent. Well, let me let me ask you this, because our listeners up until now have been, I think, mostly Canadians and Americans, um, but we're expanding, hopefully, our base. Can you describe for our audience what is the who focus not really on migration, right? Because the northern border of the United States uh, challenges are different. Right there, there are people that come across irregularly, but that's not the main driving force. So, can what is it? Uh, what's happening right now with migration um, into the United States from the United States southern border, and and what are the main drivers of that? 
Well, that's uh, uh, these weeks in particular has been very uh, there. There is a very heated debate um, in the U.S. as you've been seeing uh, a very large flow of um, of immigrants coming all the way from South America. You know, from most, many of them from Haiti and Venezuela, crossing all the way, often like seven countries, almost walking through them in, in a very arduous journey. I mean, this is not this is this is extremely difficult. It's not something you would do unless you're, you're in desperate. dire straits. Yeah, you're, you're desperate. desperate. Yeah. Yeah. These, are, these are refugees. Uh, yeah. I think. I mean, okay. the definition of refugees is a legal one, but I think that they, um, it, you know, all the context around them, it, it's pretty clear that they're fleeing. They're not choosing to. Yeah. Um, they're actually going through a, a very dangerous um, uh, part of the of the whole continent called the, between Colombia and Panama called the Darien Gap. It's a, it's a big jungle, I think about 40 miles. Um, and many people just don't make it. It's, it's a really, really difficult And what journey. makes it dangerous? Is it is it people? Is it the is it the natural environment? Lack of infrastructure? What is it that makes it so dangerous? It, it, it's a mix of things, but I think in particular the, 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 the physical conditions to be able to cross the terrain there are, yeah. are, are really... Uh, demanding, um, and and of course, like in, uh, you know, uh, every time that you have a corridor which uh, is full with uh, people, you know, trying to flee and uh, you know trying to maybe escape the authorities, you always kind of a black market develops, yeah, right. And and in the case of the southern border of the U.S., you have a lot of these uh, known coyotes who are um, charging an incredible amount of money to help people. Um, sneak through the border, um, and there, there's black marks like that everywhere, yeah. um, and, and that's why, not to get too much ahead, but you know, one of the solutions to undocumented migration is to legalize migration, right. <laughs> and right. that way you eliminate these black markets and you take right? the coyotes out of the equation. In other right, words. right, right, right. Um, let me ask you a little bit about that. There's a big debate I know in the immigration world, and one that Canada is very much on the edge of, between sort of the the old UN. Uh, High Commission on Refugees sort of understanding, which is that you keep people as close to home as possible so you can go back. And the Global Compact on Migration, which right. says, you know, we shouldn't distinguish between economic migrants, refugees and others. They're all people who need shelter and are trying to get someplace and better themselves. And they're not criminal for doing that. How do you think that tension is affecting some of the debates here in the Western Hemisphere about the movement of people? Is there something we could be doing to advance, say, to a more global compact yeah. mentality? Or do you think that takes us in, a, in the wrong direction? Yeah, you know, I, when you think about, about that uh, kind of, of a global strategy on migration, you realize how far um, behind we are on that, right? Because when you think of trade, which is, you know, the largest flow of the flow of goods and services, you have the WTO, the World Trade Organization, right. very set of organized rules. Everybody sits together, they plan together. There's an, an you know, an arbitrage mechanism. I mean, it's, it's very, it's a very well institutionalized and, um, and, yeah. setting. And even if you don't think WTO is that good here in North America, we have a really solid trading system. Right. The, so, the USMCA. And within regions, you have yeah. like very well established. Yeah. Then when you think about trade, investment, which is the other international flow, um, you have also a whole set of institutional settings, like, you know, more in the private sector, like SWIFT and then right. other organizations. Right. But when it comes to migration, there's nothing. 
Yeah. <laughs> There's no global migration organization. There's kind of the ILO, uh, the Institute, uh, the International World, Labor uh, the, Organization. Exactly. But that's about labor. That's about working conditions, not about mo right. movement, right? Right. Labor as well. Yeah. yeah. So and and it's very narrow in the sense that I think that um, uh, one one related uh, reflection is that um, we as economists uh, did a big disservice to the world because for decades, when we talked about migration, we only talked about labor markets. That was the only thing we cared about. Like, are migrants going to come, increase wages, reduce wages, unemployment? And there's like 100,000 different studies on that. And all of them find that that's not the case, that, you know, migrants are not putting special threat on, 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 on the natives' labor outcomes. Right. But there's so much more to migration, right? I mean, when right. people think about trade, you don't only think about trade and unemployment. It's a big part of it. But you think about trade is a big opportunity for people to consume at lower cost. It's a better way for productivity gains in the country. When, so, so there is um, a, a small but growing group of scholars that I'm, I'm, I, I, I feel very proud and humbled to be part of them that are looking at migration from a very different perspective and look at things such as entrepreneurship and innovation yeah, and, and great things. Just, and just one reflection to go back to, circle back to what you were saying um, it, it, before is that we don't have an institutional setting to do that. I think we're very far away. And what we have is different countries doing different things. And, and, and you were mentioning at the beginning Canada as an example of a country that is not, doesn't, is not going through the same challenges, quote unquote. Right. But I think, to be honest, it's because Ch Canada chose not to go through the same challenges. Really? I think Canada is a great example of a country that has embraced in a very smart way a, a, a migration policy that is, that is beneficial, that is a win-win for the country and for the migrants. And when it comes to refugees, I think Canada is is a role is a role model Polit politically i think I, canada is one of the countries that welcomes people from around the world i don't think it's as efficient as it gets credit for <laughs> but but i guess it's a pretty low bar exactly yeah, yeah. i would say so I wanted to ask you if it's if it's not too personal. I know a lot of your writing is about the Venezuelan migration. I know you have a Venezuelan background. Can you talk about how that has affected the hemisphere and what North America can do? Because unfortunately, we're still seeing that migration. Colombia's played a big role, but what what more could we be doing, and how can North America uh, step up to the plate on that situation? Yeah. Well, I think that there's there's a couple of things. What 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 has been very characteristics of the Venezuelan refugee crisis, which, by the way, is the largest refugee crisis in the world today. Is it, it really? It, it surpassed. It, there, there are about 6.8 million Venezuelans um, wow. in, officially that have fled the country, mostly since 2014. That surpasses the number of Syrians. No kidding. I, did, I actually didn't know that. And they're leaving because the situation at home is untenable. It's violent. There's no jobs. There's no way to support their families. And, is that, and, is that and right? there's a lot of political persecution. And uh, I mean, there's, yeah. they're fleeing a, a cruel dictatorship that is not only cruel, but it has also completely destroyed <laughs> the whole fabric of the economy of the country, yeah. which was the richest country in the hemisphere a few decades back. You said, I just want to reflect on that, 6.8 million Correct. people from Venezuela are fleeing. Yes, are, are already living outside of Venezuela. Wow. That's more than wow. the population of British Columbia and of uh, Alberta. Imagine that. Okay. Mind. And it's about, it's almost, it, it, it is um, more or less 20% of the population of Venezuela. Wow. Um, so it's devastating, both at home and, you know, for the people that have yeah, to yeah, do it's, this. It's yeah, it's devastating. I mean, Venezuela, it's also an irony, to be honest, because Venezuela 
was um, for many decades a country that was the net a net receiver of immigrants. Right. Um, Venezuela was actually the country in the region, uh, at least in South America and Central America, that received immigration as a state policy to develop as part of their development strategy back from the 50s. Like Venezuela was one of the founder, foundings, founders of what is today uh, the UNHCR, the Refugee Agency. Um, and you asked me about my personal story. I'm not going to go too much in detail, but but part of what Venezuela did um, was to was to acknowledge very early on in the 50s that migrants was a big part of their development strategy. And they, you know, they went in the after World War Two and they allowed a lot of uh, refugees um, coming out of the war to to settle in Venezuela. My grandparents were 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 some of them who survived the Holocaust and arrived to Venezuela. It was the only country that could they could have gone to. Um, and this then Venezuela really opened Venezuelan connection that you have. Yeah, I mean, I actually, I actually immigrated to Israel and, and became a citizen of Israel. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, so I hold those two citizenships, and 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 later Venezuela also allowed um, letting a lot of people who were who were being persecuted by right wing military dictatorships in Brazil, Chile, etc. So Venezuela was the country <laughs> that received immigrants, and suddenly. Um, everything turned around. Also, a lot of Colombians lived in Venezuela when Colombia was going through a very hard period of violence. And it was a wealthy country because of its energy resources, principally the oil, or for many reasons? I mean, it's uh, as an economist, I'm hesitant to tell you one reason. <laughs> uh, if, if some of my colleagues are listening to me, I don't want to, uh, you know, we're very, up, we're very obsessed with, with the causality and correlation thing. But but uh, but putting that aside, uh, yeah, of course, of course, oil played a huge role. Right. And, and oil, Venezuela, as of today, still has the largest proven reserves right. of oil, oil in the world. Um, and and yeah. second is Saudi and third is Alberta, right? I think that's right. Yeah. And Venezuela uh, in the 70s had a huge growth um, episode in part, uh, in part thanks or because the huge spike in oil prices in in after the war in 1973 in the Middle East. So, sorry, Chris. So just one more. What what and I'm sorry to be so simple minded about this, but but I, it's such an honor to be able to have a conversation and, and get smarter on something that I don't think about every day. So you talk, what flipped the switch? So you talked about Venezuela being this place where ha having a policy of welcoming migrants and building its economy that way, uh, and that being part of it, what, what changed? In 1998, Hugo Chavez was elected to power in Venezuela as the president. Um, and that started a whole different way of managing the economy, which you know, looking backwards, I would say it's a, it's, it was a big mismanagement of the economy. And it's very simple, actually. Um, Chavez, uh, uh, during, uh, experienced the largest and longest oil boom in the modern history of the country. If you remember in the early 2000s, the, the prices of oil were above $100 a barrel. Venezuela was exporting like a good amount of oil. Right. Venezuela had a very robust oil industry, now less so because, you know, maintenance and all that has, right. a lot of the human capital has left too. Um, so, so, so Chavez did exactly the opposite of what I teach my students in macroeconomics that you should do. Okay. <laughs> and what every country um, that, that, had, that, that deals with natural resources do. Uh, what Chavez did is to use all the income from oil um, not to save it on the rainy day part. Right. Um, so he, you know, they, they spend it all. 
Um, and at the same time, they put so many controls on the private sector that all of the consumption that was happening in the country was through imports. Everything was being imported. Yeah. The moment the price of oil goes down, 2014, right. then you end up in a situation where you have a private sector, you, you can't import anymore. Um, and the private sector can't really respond to the demand, to the local demand. So that's when you started hearing in the news, if you remember in 2014, that there's no toilet paper in Venezuela. Yeah. Uh, and those, those stories, right? Um, and and that, that's what happened. And, and the cherry on the top of the cake, uh, ironically, and, and, and speaking of course, is that they not only spend the money, but they also got a lot of debt. They went and yes, borrowed yes. a lot of money, yeah. which, you know, if, if, if I had an oil empire and I asked you for money and the oil is at $100 per barrel, you will probably leave me the money because, yeah, I'm going to pay back. Yeah. But when the oil goes down, you then are going to realize that I can't pay back. Right. Um, and then Venezuela is now a country that is, is a huge, it has defaulted on its debt, mm -hmm. um, doesn't have any resources to, to, for production. Uh, because the private sector has gone through price controls and all sort of things that um, that has kept them from 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 actually you know executing their their exercising their 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 business activity and you know that of course uh, the, the the poorest of the poor the ones who are paying the the heaviest toll because the solution they did at the morning at the moment and not to get too much into this is that when you can't borrow anymore when you don't have resources from oil. Well, the only thing you can do is to turn on the little machine that prints money. Yeah. And then you get hyperinflation. And, and then it and then it devalues. Sorry, Chris, one more and then oh, I'll sure. over to you. What happened to the money? What? When Venezuela was flush, when the price of oil was yeah. high, what happened to the money? Consumption. I mean, it it, it was really used by a few people or by Well, you know? no, I think I think that there, you know, if you look at the numbers um and and, and there're not that many numbers because it's a government that is not super open with with the right. data, but there was a period of time during Chavez in which poverty went down, um that 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 you know, a lot of people who 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 were in in, in need, they were doing somewhat better at least looking at the data. Um, and, and that's fine, right? Because I think one of the the thing that defines poverty is is the lack of the, your lack of ability to consume. Mm -hmm. um, so a lot of it went to consumption, but it did, was not made in a sustainable way. Yeah. Um, and 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 that's the 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 the, the, the man man catastrophe that resulted in uh, in a completely collapsed economy with a government that became more and more authoritarian, um, and then you have the perfect mix for the largest refugee crisis in the world. That's an amazing story. And I want to kind of take us to something a little more positive. Well, I cheer everyone up here. And some of the work that you've done, which, which I've read, it really focuses on something I think very relevant to Canada and to the United States, which is the connection between what you call birthplace diversity and economic growth. Can you, can you talk us through that? I mean, we've got two very multicultural societies in the U.S. and Canada and Venezuela at one time. How is that connection made? Yeah, I think that the, 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 the punchlines you said is that diversity is good for economic growth. Um, diversity of ideas, yeah, diversity of, um, of uh, backgrounds, etc. And, and I think that the intuition is very simple. And it's that, you know, talent is not concentrated in one place in the world. <laughs> talent is spread around the world. Mm -hmm. um, yet, about 97% of the people in today's world live in the same country where they were born. 97%. 97%. Wow. 
So, so we have huge restrictions to labor mobility or to mobility in general. Um, and, and, but, but the fact is that in the few places where you have a lot of diversity because there has been a lot of movement, um, you do see that these places tend to do better uh, in terms of economic growth, which is maybe the ultimate uh, aspect, but you also see it in teams that are doing innovation, sure. uh, right? And in teams that are working in particular firms that, you know, people come from different backgrounds, see, you know, they see things differently. And that actually results in thinking out of the box and thinking in ways that, that makes you more uh, productive. So yeah. that's kind of a little bit kind of the And that's not just a theory. That's something that had, the data proves out that, you, you know, you crunch the numbers and you've seen that as an actual measurable time. Yes, there's a lot of empirical studies that show that, um, and and of course, it, you know, and there's a lot of research that 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 is going on right now on that. But but I think that the results show. I mean, there there there's some aspects of it. By one of my colleagues, actually, Odette Galore, who who's a great um, economist, who has a new book uh, on the journey of economic growth, um, in where he also shows or he claims that you know maybe too much diversity can also also put some hurdles because if nobody's able to understand with anybody, right? But th there is kind of this sweet spot mm -hmm. uh, in, in which diversity is really good for, for economic growth and all that. And that's kind of where we're getting at in, in our research. Um, you, you mentioned too the, the Venezuelan diaspora and we've, we've talked about different communities uh, in these conversations before. How, how can you measure the diaspora effect? You know, Venezuelans who are now in the United States or elsewhere who'd love to come home, but are waiting for better times. We've seen remittances changed because of finance finance apps that kind of got around some of the fees. Um, how how is how is the diaspora connection to to what's going on in the home country? Uh, is it a force for change, or is it a, a simply a consolation during the hard times that they've they yeah, no, that's a good question, and I I think that diasporas diasporas are tremendously powerful. Mm. Um, and and there there's a couple of things here before before I go into into some examples, but just one point that I think is important because we were talking about refugees and and for instance, the the role of Canada, which is usually very positive, I think, than than in the U.S. and other countries. I, I think we usually, and I don't know why, but we usually make the mistake to think that when we see a huge refugee flow, um, we, we tend to believe, and I think maybe this comes out of from, from you know, good intentions, that people are just going to go back anymore, uh, you know, really quickly, right? So Syrians left in 2010, and we said, okay, let's just, you know, host and welcome them, but, you know, in a year or two, they're just going to go back. Venezuelans went to Colombia and said, okay, well, in, in six months, yeah. they're just going to go back. And the government at the time created a two-year visa, which is, you know, it's a, it was a very nice gesture, but, but a very limited time frame. Right. Same thing with Ukrainians now, right? With the, exactly what you hear right. with Ukrainians, like, yeah, they're just going to come. They're going to, the, the reality is that people don't go back that easily and that quickly. You, Ukraine might be different. I mean, any, anyway, Ukraine might be different because it's it's a very specific reason they're leaving, and they really want to. They believe that they will win. They believe that they will beat Russia, beat Putin, and that they'll be able to come back. Um, we'll see. We'll, but I, th we'll I think see, Syria yeah. has a lot of similarities with that. Yeah, I mean, I think enough. the Syrians thought that you know the civil war would end. Assad would, and and, yeah. and I think that you know at some point uh, it's been already six, seven months. Uh, but but anyway, I, I, I think I, my point here is that, you know, I, I think we have to think about how to give more agency to the refugees that if they don't want to go back, that's also fine. 
And, 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 and I mean, that's not, not only is it fine, but it, it is potentially good for whatever country it's they're potentially coming good to. And it's yeah. potentially good for the country they're in. It's, poten it's hugely important for the country they're from. And, and, and we have one study in particular that, that looks at this very carefully with all the caveats and annoying economies of like really trying to, to establish that this is a very robust connection in which we studied the case of Yugoslavian refugees uh, Bosnians, uh, Serbians, yeah, Croatians right. in the in the 1990s, um, about 600,000 of them actually ended up in Germany. That was the largest refugee, the, the lar largest displacement since World War II uh, at the time. Um, a lot of internal displacement, but a lot of them actually ended up in Germany. And in a in a paper um, that has been published this year um, it, with with my co-authors, we actually asked the question like. Can these people who spend some time abroad were exposed to different experiences, to, to, to jobs in different industries, do they, can they explain kind of the, the, the development of those same industries in their countries of origin once they go back? Um, and we find huge effects. So essentially the story here is that um, you have people who ended up in Germany and maybe they ended up working in the car industry or in the textile industry in Germany. They were exposed to better technologies, better practices, etc. Um, the, the nature of Germany allows to really tackle this well because they were after the war was over. They were their status. They were um, repatriated. They had to go back. Mm -hmm. So a lot of them actually go back, and we 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 trace that, and we see that the car industry, and the textile industry in Yugoslavia are the ones that in the Yugoslavian countries, like so, so the seven Yugoslavian countries that 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 um the former Yugoslavian republics those industries are really um are the ones that 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 perform the better um so so when you think so that's a story of diaspora mm -hmm. um but i don't think diaspora you know the members of the diaspora have to go back to be able to help um there's so many ways right so one way is remittances which is the sim the one that we hear the most and in some countries remittances are really important are a big part I mean, we're in Mexico now. Right. Mexico is a huge receiver of remittances. Um, and just to clarify it for, for people, that means, you know, you're living, let's say, in Canada um, and you send some portion of your paycheck, your earnings back to uh, Mexico or your Venezuela members, or wherever. Exactly. Right. Your family members, your friends. And you help uh, support them. So you're helping both economies, really, in some ways. Yeah. And you, I mean, it, it, in some countries, it is a huge flow, but sometimes it could be 10, 15% of the GDP of a country, particularly of small countries like maybe Armenia. And I interrupted you. You said we're in Mexico and you were talking about remittances. So what's the story here? Well, I think, I think um, th th there's about. Um, uh, I, I don't I don't know the exact number of my hand, but there's tens of like more than 10 million Mexicans living in the U.S. That's a huge diaspora, um, and they do uh, send a lot of uh, their income back home. And uh, I mean, I think that there's of course different stories in different parts of the country. Um, there, there's a city in which they had set up a policy in which for every dollar of remittances, the city will also put a dollar for investment. So there are all these kind of things that, 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 yeah. that, that happen. But I think in the, in the most basic aspect of it, you know, that is helping people who are struggling perhaps, um, to consume more, uh, and maybe to invest more, mm -hmm. right. And, and maybe to create a small firm. It doesn't have to be a small firm. doesn't have to be Google. It can be a small 
you know, mom and pop shop to where you can buy. So, so it, it, it fuels some, puts some fuel in the economy. And that's, that's kind of the most first order way in which diasporas. Well, well, sure. And, you know, we think about trade policy, we talk about it a lot on Canusa Street. And one of the ideas behind trade and is the, you know, the, the rising tide lifts all boats, right? So, so this idea that however people build their own, um, prosperity, that's good. That's good for the United States. That's good for Canada. It's actually good for everybody because you said they consume more. We sell more. Um, so why don't we take a, a little break here? And when we come back, Chris, I, I know, Danny, you're an economist. I'd like to also talk a little bit about policy and politics and how all of this affects that um, when we come back. Canusa Street is co-produced by the Canadian American Business Council. Can't get enough of Canusa Street? If you're looking for more on Canada-US relations, sign up now for Sparty Agreement's weekly newsletter at cabc.co for the latest updates on the bilateral relationship delivered right to your inbox. All of that and more at cabc.co. Welcome back to Canusa Street. We're having a conversation with Dr. Danny Behar from uh, from Brown University, who's here in Mexico as we are at the North Capital Forum, the U.S.-Mexico Foundation's conversation about the future of North America. And Dr. Behar, I wanted to ask you, uh, we were talk before the break, we were talking about diasporas. I wanted to ask you about an issue that's very live in the Canada, U.S., Mexico space, which is the issue of credentialing. You know, you have a PhD. I have a PhD. That's nice because usually, don't have a you, you, well, you you should have an honorary one. But but our degree transfers really well. But when you're talking about migration flow, you often have people who have skills that just don't get recognized in their home country, and it hurts their ability to make their best contribution to local economies. What can we do on credentialing, and what's the data show about? you know, the effect on a country that is generous in, in, in recognizing credentials or creating a way you can test in to meet the local standards? That, that, that's such a central question, right? Because, because I, I, I think that diasporas help in many ways. We're talking about remittances, which is kind of the first order you go to the bank, but there's so many other things. Uh, diasporas help, for instance, in terms of setting up networks between countries to facilitate trade and investment. This has been sure. shown empirically, right? So if you're a Canadian that moves to Mexico, uh, you, you might help create some synergy between a firm in Mexico and a firm in Canada because as a Canadian migrant in Mexico, you know both places, right? Mm -hmm. so, so that's an important part of, of, of global trade. Um, and, 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 and there's the idea that also migrants, um, the diaspora can play a huge role in, in transferring know-how and knowledge, which is the example we were talking before in Yugoslavia. But for that to happen, you need uh, policies in place that will help these migrants to integrate as much as possible where they are. And the reality of it is that you're mentioning credentials, which is a big one, especially for, of course, people who like skilled, quote unquote, individuals, um, in, in which there's, there's, again, there's no one set of rules and, and, and countries like what we've seen in Latin America with the Venezuelan case is that countries were not prepared for this and they also don't have a good institutional setting to see how are we going to accept credentials from another place, right? And, and I think, um, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know exactly what would be the great, the best design for that in terms of, of, um, of, of making that process simple and easy, but, but that is part of the bigger question and the bigger policy on how do you, what do you do to help people integrate as much as possible and reach their full potential 
wherever they are. Because that is not only a favor that you're doing to them, <laughs> that is, uh, uh, you know, essential for you as a country that is receiving these migrants to, to, to have, a, you know, to, to, if they're reaching their full potential, that's good for the economy, for everybody. And you're also helping, you know, indirectly down the road, the country that they're coming from. Um, so I think that that's a huge uh, topic that I think is actually quite under-researched um, and something that I'm looking forward to get more into it. Um, just because, uh, you know, sometimes even we, we stop at the idea, okay, let's just give them a visa, uh, which is, of course, a first step and it's great, but, but you know, finding a job is hard. <laughs> you don't only need a G. I mean, it's hard for all of us. Like, you need networks and so on. So imagine how hard it is for a migrant. So I think that the biggest question, at least in my mind, on, on this topic is like, what are the policies to help immigrants, wherever they are, integrate in the labor markets in the best way possible? And of course, that goes through credentials. I think that's a hugely central part of it. I, I agree. I uh, recently was in a cabin uh, in Washington and had an uh, Iraqi born in Iraq driver who was an engineer, but he couldn't be an engineer because we didn't recognize his training. So I know that's a very powerful uh, problem. I want to ask you about something else, which, which really goes back to that idea of the global compact. We used to think you have to stay close to home because we do expect you to go back home when the situation changes. But today, the internet, the, the very changed social media environment, in a way, it seems it enables people to participate in the political and intellectual life of their home country from their host country. And I, I, we've been following the Ukraine situation. And I there are a couple of Canadian websites where Ukrainian Canadians are out trying to fight what they see as sort of Russian propaganda on social media to kind of correct the record or say, oh, no, this is not happening. So people can be very involved in trying to engage in the information space on behalf of their home country from a country where they are able to operate freely. How does the Internet, how does that ability to connect, even with cell phones and find your family, et cetera, change the relationship of a diaspora to the country and maybe even contribute to change, a positive change yeah. in their home country? No, that's that's a great question, and um, it's it's um, there, there's also some studies that actually have looked into that, and I think that there is there is a lot of evidence on that that um, that diasporas also help um, or, or facilitate this diffusion of culture uh, between places, and and even of democracy in some places. There's a good study that I've seen looking actually at, at the Moldovan diaspora, in which uh, a lot of them actually went uh, east, a lot of them went west, and and then they're trying to assess like. You know, if the effect of those that were went west is more pushing towards a more democratic reform in the country versus the ones who went east, right? So that's exactly to 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 your point, and I think that that's that's a really a hot topic that that we're trying to learn. And I, I would agree that with the technologies that we have, that all these effects could be even amplified. Well, so we're coming to the end, and and, and I'm so thankful to to learn from you. <clears throat> I want to ask you here as we as we as you know kind of come to the end. Maybe one more question, and Chris, maybe you have one more, and and then you can you can conclude with everything I, you I want. Can but ask questions too. yeah, you sure. Um, uh, but based on your experience, your your personal experience, your uh, academic research, um, what's the you, you've talked about? You know, we need we don't have global institutions um, that deal with human beings moving around the world um, sufficiently, um, and and we need public policies to to also deal with this phenomenon. In your mind, 
what is the ideal scenario? Like who's, who's the global body to do this? What are the policies that are needed? I, I know that's, I'm oversimplifying, but if you could just design it, um, what, what it being public policy in the world, uh, what would it look like? Yeah, I, I will give you, um, I will, as a good professor, I will I will change the question. <laughs> no, I, I, no, I will I will give you perhaps not like the big picture. At least you're but, not but, a lawyer. But, but, you know? <laughs> yeah, uh, but but a good example of one. And I yeah. think my colleague um, and and great economist at the Center for Global Development, Michael Clemens, mm-hmm. um, who was like a thought leader on this topic, has has really put forward uh, this idea of something called um, the Global Skills Partnership. Um, and, and essentially, the idea is that um, countries can do a much smarter immigration policy um, that links their labor market needs mm-hmm. with um, with the with the potential immigration flows. So, so this is a very. Uh, I think this has a lot of potential to be institutionalized. And, and an example would be like the U.S., for instance, needs a lot of health workers, yeah, uh, which is not going to be fulfilled uh, by Americans by locals, it's just. I mean, the numbers are not there. That's right. Um, and these take us the, the baby boomers. Exactly. And sure. care, exactly. Yeah, the, this take us also to a bigger conversation, or, or maybe a, a short sentence we can talk at the end about. You know, why is it so crazy that with all this inflow of Venezuelans and other immigrants coming to the U.S. Uh, and having such labor shortages, our first thought is, oh, this is great. Let's just you know use you know let's just give them a right to work, and they can no, that's not the conversation happening in the U.S. Yeah. So anyway, but 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 a good example is that you know you have certain positions. In the case of the U.S., if you go right now, go to your computer, and go to the BLS website, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, and and, and they will tell you what is the forecast of the occupations that are not that are going to grow the most in the next ten years, and those occupations will include nurses, right. will also include cooks, and and and, and fast food restaurants, and 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 the reason is that. You know, the economy needs everybody because the nurse needs the cook and the cook needs the nurse. So we are much more complementary to each other than we are substitutes. Right. Um, and, and, and you have uh, this global skill partnership, which we, we could kind of, I, I think it has the potential to be scaled up, provides a framework where a country like the US, knowing it has a huge shortages on health workers, can invest in training people outside of the country before they migrate on part- with particular skills that once and, and then give them a legal pathway to be able to was, enter the country and fulfill say, this. Yeah, sorry, this to, sorry to interrupt you. I was just going to say that because the missing link between, okay, you've got people and you've got job needs is how do you, how do you train them? So I'm glad you said that because if we can do more about uh, building people's skills, uh, we need. But you're right. We need everything. I mean, every job. It's not just healthcare and cooks. It's also engineers. Um, it's IT. Computers, it's 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 software, and it's yeah. agriculture. Chris, yeah. I was I was in just a quick quick aside here. I was in mm-hmm. Halifax, Nova Scotia, um, sitting with. Uh, a company that is a, a really iconic bakery out there, and uh, they bake these delicious uh, confections. And the CEO, she said to me, "I've got 80 jobs, 80 vacancies that I can't fill. I really, I need people that can that can bake at, and or that are willing to learn. I'll train them. Um, but the the Canadian system is so slow; it takes two years." 
and she can't wait two years. And people that are fleeing, uh, that are refugees, can't wait two years. So we also need to to move with haste. We need we need speed somehow in the system. We have data. We don't have speed, (laughs) and we don't have political will. But we have the data to to really plan in in a way that makes a lot of sense. And you're right. We don't have political will because still, you know, when when politicians think about migration, they only think about wages and unemployment. Yeah. And and there's so much more. We've got to come back on another episode and talk about political will. But but before we do that, Chris, over to you. Well, just my last question, really. And, and it's all a level of analysis problem. We've been talking about domestic policies and so on. But we started this conversation talking about international institutions. And Canada, unlike the United States, U.S. is really good at starting the conversation, but Canada's middle power has often excelled by embracing issues like this and then working it through multilateral institutions to create things with other middle powers. I mean, they have a little bit more, I think, sometimes time and energy and skill in working in the weeds than the U.S., which is a big bang, big country. You know, But maybe Canada and the U.S. working together could be a catalyst for some of the international or multilateral uh, change that you um, that you identified as being necessary. Do you think that's plausible? Is this something that we on Canusa Street should be endorsing for uh, for a project for the 21st century for for these two neighbors? Um, well, I think I think definitely something worth endorsing, and I I, I would endorse it too. Um, I'm just, um, my pessimism comes from the fact that it it really has become such a politicized issue that it really will depend on who's sitting in the White House and who's sitting in in power in Canada too. Uh, Even though I think that in Canada there's there's a bit more of a a consensus on this, Um, but but, I mean, compared to governors in the U.S. sending people on buses, I mean, that's, that's really like... Yeah, that's the, beyond, the, 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 beyond just, yeah. yeah. Um, so, I mean, that's my hope, but I, I, I don't know. Um, our work as technocrats um, has to really be on steroids to really try to show these facts and try to, you know, make everybody to give some sense on this discussion. In a way, as two countries built by immigration in a long, throughout their history, Canada and the U.S. should be an example of how this can work. Uh, over the long term, if we can just realize how much the benefits are. And your research is really, I think, pointing us in the right direction. Thank you, Dr. Danny Bayar, for being with us today. Absolutely. Thank you. And if there's one last word you'd like to give us or a last thought, we'll leave the last word to you. Yeah, no, it's been such a pleasure. And uh, I'm, I'm a big fan uh, um, of the podcast and and of Canada. It's it's. Uh, I, I live now very close to the border. Uh, or I mean, I, I live in Boston, so it's a five-hour drive. Yeah. to Quebec, which I took with my daughter uh, before she turns one. So to show her like, you know, there's there's other countries. That's fantastic. Uh, and did she learn to speak time. French during your well, we, little sojourn? Yeah, our, our French was very rusty. So we, 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 we <laughs> thankfully English was what allowed us to. And you have your own podcast. I have my own podcast, which we're relaunching this year called Economist on Zoom Getting Coffee, <laughs> in which we have every uh, episode, a conversation with an economist about topics about the big question that that keeps them busy but that are important to all of us that's better than economist on zoom on mute which is not which is a really boring podcast so (laughs) hope it it happens it happens (laughs) thank you so much for joining us thank you a pleasure cheers Well, Chris, it's a good day when you learn something, and I learned a lot today in that conversation. In particular, I didn't know that the Venezuelan refugees 
is, or is the largest cohort in the world, 6.8 million people, bigger than Syria, bigger than Afghanistan, bigger than Ukraine, and it's right here at home. So that is, um, it, it feels urgent, and yet I don't think we have the urgency in the United States and Canada maybe that we need on this issue. What do you think? I, I agree. I think what's happened with Venezuela and, and is that it sort of snuck up on us. Ukraine was a big bang. Syria was a big bang. Uh, Venezuela has been going through trouble going back to Chavez almost a decade. And so that outflow has grown over time. But I think in that way, didn't command the attention it should have. Um, and it, it was great to talk to an expert who could really put that into some perspective for us. It really was. And, you know, I, I don't want to get too political here. We try not to be too political on Canusa Street. But I have to say, in the news right now, you have a real, more so than ever, I think, a demonization of the people that are coming into this country and and you know we've seen them used as political stunts um you know the governor of florida flew people into nantucket the news this summer was all about that they didn't know um where they were going or why they were kind of lured into it it, it you know there are lawsuits having to do with human trafficking i mean that tells you the extent to which i think this is a real problem, but the political focus uh, is is scary to me. What do you, you know? What are your What are your views on that? I think the U.S. debate on immigration is is so tough because while these these recent moves, the 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 very shifting of of migrants to northern cities. Um, has been shocking. I think for a lot of border states, they've been feeling the impact of of what seems like large flows of immigrants and and they feel their communities are hurting. And in this, I think Canada is a really good example. Canada, because it's focused on bringing skilled immigrants has a long history of people really becoming part of the Canadian community. And I think uh, Dr. Behar was kind of talking about that. If, if we don't think people are here temporarily to take jobs at the low end, but we help them with the credentials, we help them to become real economic contributors, then there's less animus. We see them as a success story rather than a threat to people who are working you know, on the minimum wage jobs and so on. The, the real shock to me is that 3% unemployment, where the US is an incredible period where very tight labor markets. Canada's a little bit less uh, less tight, but we need talent and yeah. we need brains. And it's time to kind of reboot this conversation and and focus on how do we help people become contributors and, as Dr. Behar said, reach their potential, which is a benefit to all of us. Well, that's right. Flipping it on its head and seeing it uh, seeing migration, uh, inward migration to our countries as. Uh, a competitive advantage. I think that's. I think that's the way. Uh, I think it's fantastic that the academic world um, is is giving us the data and the analysis to for policymakers to really think differently um, about about people coming into our countries. Well, and and uh, migration is a two way street. Uh, people come out as diaspora, they're still participating in their community. There's a lot of flow and Canusa Street's a two-way street too. And the U.S. can learn a lot from Canada on migration debates. And I think there are also ways in which Canada can take a lesson from some of the things the U.S. has done. So uh, this is a very live issue. It's never been on the center of the Canada-U.S. agenda, but maybe it's time for us to be doing some talking about how we can uh, do a better job with our new arrivals. That's exactly right. And what better place to talk about it than here in Mexico City? It's great to see you, my friend. It is great to see you as well, Scotty. And we'll see you next time. This podcast is brought to you by the Canadian American Business Council and the Wilson Center. If you like this episode, 
help others find our show and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify.